Hi, I'm Jennifer Mulholland. And I'm Jeff Shuck. We're the co-leaders of Plenty. Thanks for joining our podcast, Plenty for Everyone. Each episode, we talk with conscious leaders like you to explore abundance in work and life, fulfillment in head and heart, and ways we can all work together to make this world a better place. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Plenty for Everyone. This is our 20th episode, we just realized. And Jen, 20 and 2020, 20 might be a bit of a cursed number, but we're changing that today with our guest. I can't wait to introduce you. First, let me just introduce myself. I'm Jeff Shuck. I'm the co-leader of Plenty. And with me, as always, is our other co-leader, Jennifer from Holland. She's in Park City. Hi, everybody. Where, is it snowing? What's happening there today? It was minus two degrees below zero. Well, obviously minus two yesterday. And it was 16 degrees here. We have a light flurry of snow. And the mountains are blowing snow, getting ready for the season. But unfortunately, we have sunny skies for the next week, which in most cases you'd be praying for, but we need the snow and water desperately. So bundled up here. If you've never been to Park City, Utah, one of many reasons you need to go is when it's negative two there, you wouldn't know it because it's sunny and bright and lovely. I'm in Michigan City, Indiana, and it's lovely here too, but... It's also 40 degrees and rainy, and it's that kind of lovely, if you can get your head around that. Let me also mention another reason you should go to Park City, Utah, is it's where our retreat center, HeartSpace, is located, where last week we had our first Lantern Leadership Retreat of the year, masked up and all, and maybe in this episode or in the next episode, we'll talk a little bit about that. But first, without further ado, we want to welcome today's guest, who is a client and a friend and a force in philanthropy and just an amazing person, our good friend, Elaine Martin, who is the managing director of the private donor group at Fidelity Charitable, which you may not know is the country and maybe the world's largest philanthropy at this point. Elaine and um, Plenty met a couple years ago, and we did a lot of wonderful work with Fidelity. This is a person you need to know. So I just want to give you a, a little bit of background on Elaine before joining Fidelity. She worked at the Global Fund for Women, an organization that we love. So we're talking world changer here. And I think our first podcast guest with a master's degree in Victorian literature Yes. We've been looking for you all of our lives. Elaine, welcome. Thank you for being here. We're so grateful to have you. Oh my gosh. It's so great to be with you. And, you know, I think it's funny you say that thing about the Victorian literature. There were only four people in my master's degree program. Is There are not that many of us who really want to spend an entire year reading 500 pages of novels that are a hundred years out of date, but we're really <laughs> so I'm excited to be here with you guys and your friendship means so much to me it's really crazy how this year has made us just reevaluate who we're spending time with and how we're spending time and I was just so excited and a little nervous coming in to have this chat with you because you never know what's going to be revealed when you're in conversation <laughs> with 
Jeff and Jennifer. That is true. We don't know either. So we're up for all of it, as we say here. But I love, we were just talking before about having the podcast be this tool that unites us and so grateful. You're just one of those people that we wish we could see and work with all the time. And so inspired by your conscious leadership and the way you go about helping to, you know, really unlock growth for wonderful causes at Fidelity, but more importantly, how you see your people and staff and yourself. And so really grateful for this time and hope it continues. So, well, maybe let's start. I mean, there's so much to unpack and we could talk to you for days. We know that to be true for sure. But in the maybe kind of orienting people to your role and maybe what what you're up to at Fidelity and for the people that don't know Fidelity's role as being the largest nonprofit and the private donor group in particular, just as a context, because it's an incredible lever that ha- does good in multiple cause areas and maybe orienting to your role in that, you know, ripple effect, if you will, goodness of abundance and of growth. For sure. So Fidelity Charitable, we're about to celebrate our 30th birthday. It's our 30th anniversary, which is so exciting. And one of the things that's unique about us, we're, we're a national donor advised fund. So we uh, we partner with kind of three major stakeholder groups, nonprofits, donors, and advisors to help facilitate significant philanthropy into our sector. And it's been really interesting as we look back at our 30-year history to think about this notion that has been driving us all along, which is the idea of democratizing philanthropy. And so within that, we have now 250,000 donors across all of Fidelity Charitable. And our model is sort of give, grow, grant. You can contribute a tax-efficient gift into your donor advised fund. We help you by allowing you to choose from a variety of mutual fund options. I think that we have 24 now. Um, Or you can bring in your wealth advisor um, to help you plan out your investment strategy within the donor advised fund. And then we've granted to over 240,000 nonprofits over our 30-year history. Last year alone, 150,000 nonprofits. And, you know, this idea of being the largest grant maker, last year we gave away $7.3 billion. And it's mind-boggling. Like that number feels just unbelievable. But it's... 7.3 7.3 billion across one and a half million grants to 140,000 nonprofits. So that's the part that's really powerful to me. It's this idea of really being able to enable donors to be empowered, to make choices around what they care about and how, and also touch lots of different areas. Because as humans, we can't pick just one cause that we care about. We're, we're not you know, one-dimensional, we're multi-dimensional, we're intersectional. And so the donor advice fund has sort of been a tool to enable people to be able to reflect that in their giving. And so I work with our private donor group, which are our ultra high net worth donors, often who are, you know, the wealthiest person in their town that you've never heard of, because they're very generous, but they're very humble. They're often giving quietly without a lot of fanfare. And so my team and I work with them to figure out their family strategy. How do they want to think about their impact in their community? And how do they want to think about their legacy and beyond? Let's take a, let's slow down on donor advised funds and not 
assume everybody listening knows what that is. So I'm going to take a crude crack at it and then you're going to correct me. So if, you, if you're not familiar with what it is, it's basically a financial device that allows you, say you have money and you know you want to give it away and you want to do it in a way that allows it to continue to grow and shields it from taxes, but you're not sure where it needs to go yet or you need some advice on where it could go. You can give it to a donor advised fund and you get a tax deduction because it's going to get go to charity, but you can let it sit there and grow. And then you can get the, the input of people like Elaine's team who can sit with you and say, oh, if you really care about child welfare in the developing world, here's places that you could give. Or if you really care about job skills training in your town, here's a few places that we can give it to. I know I vastly simplified something, but how close did I get to describing what what that mechanism is? Great. You did a great job. And I think the key is that when you put some funds into your donor advice fund, it's an irrevocable gift. So you get a tax deduction at that time. And I think this idea of being able to give into your donor advice fund and then have the time to think about your strategy is has been so relevant this year more than ever, because it's a combination of like, the urgency of the moment that we're trying to meet and being able to give and you have the money ready available, but also thinking about what are the big systematic and systems change strategies that you want to put in place to make the world a better place in the long term. And so that's really one of the benefits of the donor advice fund. It's a really great tool for being able to do both. Well, and one of the things that has always lit us up about how you help your large net worth donors figure out where they apply their funds is how you go about it and love the the language about you know investigating and listening and having these family meetings around you know really listening to what they care about and why they care about it which for us at plenty as you know is in the heart of our model and we call that passion it's literally how we define what we're passionate about is what we care about and why we care about it. And for each one of us, it's so unique, but that creates a fuel, a momentum. And in your case, it's in the form of money. It's in the form of financial support. But in other cases, it might be volunteer hours or time or you know how you show up. And maybe share with us of, of how you go about that. Like, how do you extract? What have you seen that works around making that alignment about what somebody cares about and then how, what the impact of that is? How do you like matchmake, if you will, between a nonprofit who is the beneficiary to the donor who has the interest of giving to their cause? Yeah, I mean... I think the first thing I would say is we are humans first, right? And individuals, philanthropy is so deeply personal. And so how do we take it away from being a transaction and truly make it a transformational experience? That's really at the heart. Like one of my taglines that I always use my team, I used to be like putting the fun in fundraising. And now it's like, how do we move from transactional to transformational? And I think at the heart of that, we would say we start with a values-based approach to strategic philanthropy. So we do a ton of different exercises. We use tools like the 2164 tools, the values cards, or their picture of your legacy cards to help donors identify like what are the values that they 
care about the most? Like, what are the things that they are, they want to hang their hat around and say, these are who I am as an individual. This is what we represent as a family. This is the, the impact I want to make on the world. And what are those values that are driving that? I think the other thing is that we're saying, once you've identified those values, how do you take the formative experiences, the personal um, exposures that you've had, and then also the things that you are challenged by, upset, or inspired by in the world, and how do you document that in a way that informs you writing a mission statement? And I, I love for donors to kind of sit down and start with a philanthropic mission statement. Like, and we actually created on our website a couple of, about a year ago this kind of philanthropic mission statement, Mad Lib almost, where you can answer a couple of questions like, who, what's the community that you want to serve? What's the geographic area? What's the reason that you believe that these are the areas that are, matter to you most? And even answering those little questions can populate a little, almost couple sentences mission statement. And we put that onto the donor advice fund in your own account. So you can kind of hold yourself accountable. So I think this idea of like, what is your intention and how do you match that with the impact that you're seeking. So trying to encourage people to be intentional and using a values-based approach to, be, to set those intentions and then actually holding yourself accountable by saying, is my impact about, am I, am I challenging this nonprofit to do something that I want them to do? Or is it something that, is there a way for me to encourage them to be a true partner with me and for me to be a true partner with them and to rebalance the way I'm thinking about the work um, so that's serving them and not just serving me. And so I think that's really, you know, at the heart of a lot of what we think about with our donors. There's so many things there that are worth highlighting. And and one I want to make sure we don't jump over for people listening is putting together two of the kind of facts we dropped right at the beginning, which is Fidelity Charitable celebrating its 30th birthday. And it's the largest philanthropic organization in the world. And just there is a sea change that Fidelity Charitable represents that I want people to think about, you know, think about organizations that are decades, if not hundreds of years old, like the Red Cross and the Salvation Army. And Fidelity Charitable is now bigger than those organizations. And that says something about people's passion, people's choice, people wanting to see their idealism in action and make it more personal. So there's a there's a systemic thing happening that in a time of systemic change, I think it's worth highlighting some of the positive. But you also said something that's really personal. And as Jen and I were getting ready to see you again this morning, we both thought about a, a personal experience we had with you that's on the other side of these forces you're talking about, about how we put our passion in our work. And it was something that happened when we were on site with you and your team that really was was quite moving. And I think we wanted to see if you would share that and use that as a, as we just wanted you to share it. Let me just stop there. Would you, do you mind sharing that experience a little bit? Yeah. And I, I think of you all so often when we think about what's happening in the world today and the, the, experiences that people are having day to day, this idea of like grief and loss and and the idea of like the personal and the professional crossing over. You know, here we are, I'm sitting in my dining room and you're sitting in your homes and, and we're no longer sitting in a conference table together. So a few years ago, you all visited our offices um, when we were going to do a, a 
planning day with my team to think about our strategy for how are we going to amplify our growth? How are we going to truly align around that idea of like abundance and growth? And I love the word plenty as well. And in an unexpected, shocking, um, and truly heartbreaking, I think is the word that comes to mind, turn of events, one of our colleagues, um, who was a senior leader at Fidelity Charitable, passed away that morning um, in a completely unexpected passing. And we got the news literally as we were preparing to launch our session. And, you know, my team is remote. They're all scattered all over the country. We really only come together in person as a team two or three times a year. And so that time together is often like very joyful and precious. And we want to cram as much into it as we can, right? You want to have all these results and you want to be able to have an action plan that you can follow through for the rest of the year. And I just remember just, in fact, thinking about it, I I feel like my body is getting like hot and like my face feels a little tight because I do think, you know, the passing of a, a beloved colleague and especially Fidelity Charitable, it's such a family, like our team is so close knit, even though we're not together all the time. And suddenly we were having to process this acceptance of this grief in a way that we hadn't, it hadn't even occurred to me that like some kind of major crisis could have unfolded like the draw of that. And, and yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to actually remember what was happening in that moment. And I actually think you all being there, almost like our guardian angels saying to us, like, it's okay to be in this moment and take stock of like what living in and not be focused on what loss and grief are but also like how do we want to live it was a it was a real turning point for our for us as a team and to reinforce that our lives are 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 the first thing we need to be thinking about and then also our health our well-being our spirit how much are we giving of ourselves and at what expense and at what cost to ourselves but also like what does the sector need it was it was so profound and and would just continue to send our condolences to the whole family of Fidelity and, and her family, just the impact of the loss that was so abrupt and sudden and shocking. And, you know, we're living through a year where there's so much that has come, quote unquote, out of the blue that we haven't planned that has gotten our attention to reevaluate what matters most. And, you know, during that time, we, there was a few things that occurred and maybe we can unpack it because that example is so relevant now, right? Not only from the loss that people are feeling, but the, you know, the, the living through uncertainty and that, that language you just used, like, it didn't even occur to me that something so, you know, impactful and so, you know, such loss could happen so suddenly. And, the the idea the conversation that it surfaced around taking care of ourselves and what is the consequence when we're running really fast even if it's to do good that there there are consequences if we're not taking care of ourselves in our own health and our own well-being that has a huge impact and so that was the right conversation but one of the things we did was a full stop 
right? We did our best in the moment and Jeff and I in the hallway were kind of real time powwowing with you and like what, trying to be as present to showing up to what just showed up with no instructions, with no toolkit, like no, no, this is how you respond to this situation. And what occurred to us at the time was we need to stop. We need to hold, we need to be, we need to hear, we need to give people the, this space to process the shock. Literally everybody in the room was shocked and you had to deliver the news moments after you got the email, you know? So the way that we came together, I think, to strategize, if you will, what was the best way to communicate but the outcome in that moment was to pause the meeting, right? To stop going forward and to really take stock of the impact. And, you know, maybe just share a little bit about why that was helpful or how it was helpful, because it feels like now in today's kind of pace and a lot of things coming out of the blue and a lot of unknowns and a lot of uncertainty that it feels like sometimes pushing forward in the way we were is not the answer. It doesn't help. Yeah, I think inevitably, like we are all action-oriented people and the default is action. And the prize goes to like how quickly or efficiently or effectively you can get to the end point. And we always talk about like, it's the process of going through it, but we never talk about the process of pausing or stopping or, and, and, you know, I think that idea of like listening and honestly being in community with one another, literally just sitting together, having shared food and drink and being in a space together to reflect is such a rare gift that I think it's been one of the key things that we've actually said we need to do more of. And actually, you know, when I worked at the Global Fund for Women, um, we used to have this thing we called Pause Week. And it was, everyone was grounded, everyone was home for a week, where everyone came to the office every day, and we did all sorts of like fun activities. Like we didn't do the yoga class in the morning, we might do a little dance party in the afternoon. And it was like lots of little breakout sessions where people were actually just talking, and not scripted. And it wasn't prescriptive process. But I think this idea of like what's prescriptive and what's action oriented and why do we value that over this idea of like slowing down, being reflective, being community, being pausing together. And how can we put more weight into the value of that? Because I think that is the only way, you know, we could have powered through, right? Like, we talked about it. We were like, is it better to just distract ourselves, have something to do, be focused, give ours. But I don't think anyone could have been as valuable in in any of those conversations as we were when we were able to reschedule it a few months later and actually be truly present and appreciate that that was the moment for activity, right? Versus the moment for pause. I love where you're taking us. And I think, well, one, I would just pause myself and say, it's one of the best examples of leadership I think I've ever seen. Um, I would just applaud you for that of knowing, you know, to take care of the organization, we have to take care of the people and to take care of the people means we start with what's inside for them. You know, it's, it's not about gym memberships and, and, you know, 
smoothies in the cafeteria. It's about taking care of people's souls. And the knowing that you had of let's just stop right now. I just, I love that. And I, and we've talked a lot about that this year to where you're going and wondering, I think a little bit, are we, the faster we move, are we being given more reasons to stop? Like, are, are we missing it? And I, and I think one thing we talk about is, you know, it can be uncomfortable to be on pause. You, I think you can start to look for things to distract you and to occupy your mind and to keep you busy, but to really stop and look around and see where you are can feel really unsettling. And yet I think Jen, like this is something we talked a lot about last week. It's also a practice. And the more you do it, the more you see is right there. And then you start to realize, whoa, this is the only place I can be actually is right here right now. So I'm curious what your, how you would bounce on both of those comments, Jen. Yeah. I love, I mean, there's such power in the pause and space is underrated. You know, we shared that last week. It just is. And, you know, would love for more people to, and more conscious leaders, honestly, to experiment with what space means to them. What space can you create to deeply listen to the cues in your body to become more aware of the signs? I love that you verbally out, you know, shared for the people that can't hear you that were listening, that actually your face was getting tight and you were feeling heat. And that's energy moving through you. That is passion. That is life force. Those are your cues to say, you know, okay, I'm living here. This feels vulnerable. There is depth here. And whatever meaning we put on it is up to each one of us to choose. But the the part of, you know, being unaware a a conscious leader is being aware of the cues and to not force your way through. And we're living through a time that, you know, it's how effective is force, you know, how effective is getting it done, proving, striving, pushing, rather than potentially allowing, receiving, inviting, And that comes from pausing. It comes from having space to literally tune in to what you need as a conscious leader, what you need for yourself. And then how can you, you know, invite others to inquire and you lead from that place where it is okay to have space because there's some magic of insight of wisdom that comes forth when we have space. Otherwise we don't hear it. And I love like that, the insight that was so true and evident is when we're in an emotional state of stress or in that case, shock, right? It was, you have no capacity to absorb, to make decisions that are of high quality. So the, the higher our stress, the lower quality our decisions because the lower quality our thinking. And when we have space, we're able to kind of raise our, our, the quality of our thinking, if you will, which then leads to raising the quality of our decisions. And I think we, all, we have a saying at Plenty that we slow down to speed up. We have to create space. And sometimes it feels like 
we're not doing anything. I love like as action doers, like it feels so uncomfortable to stop doing, but they're, they're new clothes to try on that are so effective in terms of performance, you know, outcome, impact, team performance, efficiency, that if we can take that time to create the space for ourselves and create the space for our team to do the same, then it's almost like the shorter cut, shortcut comes into view rather than having to try all these things and repeat meetings because you weren't really present and you're running too fast. So you have to redo, 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 which is totally inefficient anyway. So let's just take the shorter path with space. Exactly. I mean, someone gave me some really practical advice, like early on in the pandemic and said, like, eat soup. And I was like, soup? What are you talking about? And they were like, Soup is something you have to slow down to eat it. Like if you're going to eat soup in a white sweater, you're going to get it all over you. And if I you love that. <laughs> more soup, you're going to eat it slowly. You're going to take a moment to like focus on what you're doing. You're not like eating a salad on the side of your desk while you're trying to do five other things. Like, and I think that idea can be translated beyond that. I am. Um, I spend about a month. In over the summer with my sister and my parents, my sisters and my parents in Rhode Island and Boston, and my sister Janine and her husband Waylon and their two kids. You know, both of them are full time working, and they have a three year old and a one year old. And I actually was so blown away by like how they're juggling like their jobs and raising these gorgeous children, and they're so brilliant. And and I left their house, and I was like, I can never ask my team to have like a, a schedule meeting. Like I have to figure out when did they have time to call me? Like in between raising their kids and everything else, like I want them to have a little space to be able to just choose what's right to them. Like, and some of them said to me, actually, we really like the rigor of like having a consistent time where we can say to everyone, I need this hour to talk to Elaine or I need an hour to be able to go to a team meeting. And others were like, oh my God, that's so helpful because it turns out our scheduled one-on-one was the same time as like when I need to be logging my kid into remote learning or, you know, dropping them off at whatever masked up practice that they're going to. And I think even just remembering like these are humans and these are people that you care about. Like you don't want, they can only be, we ask of our teams, you know, as philanthropy people, whether you're working in a nonprofit or as grant makers to give so much of yourself. And yet we so rarely think like about what burden it's putting on them. <laughs> and so how can we lift some of that off and really, I don't know, eat more soup? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I love the consciousness. So last week at Lantern, one of our participants said conscious leadership, like you keep using that term. So like explain it to me, unpack it to me. And we kind of did our facilitator job, which is to ask the group what they think it is. And, you know, when you do that, you get great, great answers and kind of what emerged is, I think, pretty close to how we define it. It's this awareness of what's around us and awareness of self and its connectedness, connectedness to the people around us and connectedness to source or divine or the universe or however you want to say it. And I just want to highlight the awareness to even see and then the awareness to apply, right? Like, okay, I see this. This might mean something that my team needs to do. And then the the leadership comes in saying, 
well, I can do something about that. And that I think was really striking about Fidelity even a couple of years ago was how much they have decided, and we would say in, in, in a great way, that team well-being isn't something that happens on the weekend or happens at six o'clock. And you can see it in the office. You can see it in what's offered to people. You can see it in how people carry themselves. This idea that, you know, well-being is actually a 24-7 gig. It doesn't happen at Saturday morning yoga class. And so I'm kind of I'm kind of throwing a couple of topics in here, but I I love that example, Elaine, of just, you know, there's there's enough time to eat soup. There really is enough time to eat soup. It needs to be the title of this podcast for sure. <laughs> eat, eat more soup. I do want to just add to another observation that I hear you exemplify in your leadership of the example of how you're doing your one-on-ones is that it's personal and there's no one size fits all. Like I don't hear you saying that all of our one-on-ones are going to be at 9 a.m., you know, Eastern, whatever, that you have the awareness to say, what does my team need? And can I customize my approach? The intent is to have a one-on-one conversation. How we get there may, may change and shift. And I think we get ourselves into the, a trap as leaders of trying to apply a one-size-fits-all in how we do anything. We think it works, and so we apply it to everybody. But we're living through a time right now, and you really see it with the experience of COVID, depending upon where you live geographically. Like, you may have outside access to nature all the time. You may not at all. You may not have left your, you know, your apartment for months. And just the diversity of experience of where people are living and how they're living through this time. One of those juju kind of, you know, applications of conscious leadership is knowing what your team needs and being willing to ask and then being willing to say, I'll meet you halfway. And I think that's underrated too, that we just kind of say, this is my style of leadership and I've taken these assessments and this is my personality. So I'm going to have to do this and this is how it is. And it's just not, that's kind of outdated and crumbling and love your personalization of showing up with your presence around what does my team need? How, you know, I, I'm hearing with more empathy and seeing what they're going through because you, your sister and you saw it. And then you're applying that to, wow, the moms and dads that are working on my team, they're juggling a lot. How can I meet them there? Really appreciate that approach. And I think even just like little, again, these seem so obvious after the fact, but like putting it out there to say, do you want to be on Zoom or do we want to do a FaceTime and go for a walk together? Right. And that I've loved doing that with my team and saying it's okay to leave your notebook behind and just to have a chat versus like feeling we have to check off all the things on our checklist, which I think is our instinct again, that action orientation. And then um, a couple of people like it was three o'clock and I hadn't eaten anything yet that day. And I was like, hey, do you mind if we like make lunch together? You're in noon Pacific time. I'm 3 p.m. And you're like, you haven't eaten yet? And so I'm like, let's just have a quick lunch. Like we used to eat together at restaurants all the time. Like why do we, why do people turn their video off when they're eating? It's, you know, I think a lot of people end up doing that. And it, I don't know, I feel like all these little things, even giving the people 
um, even our donors, we often say to them, do you want to do Zoom? Do you want to do a phone call? Or do you want to do a FaceTime? Like, and, and then have them lead us in what works for them. I think, why are we not, what, how can we apply that more to ourselves is, is key. So let's take that. I love, I really just want to keep saying, I love your awareness and consciousness and willingness to, to serve and would be interested in, in the flip side of, I think something that a lot of us have struggled with too, is finding our own space, you know, and what are the boundaries of turning off zoom? And what are the boundaries if you're living with people of saying like, I can't talk to you right now? What, how have you found, has it been easy to create your own personal space? Has it been difficult? How are you, what have you uncovered there for yourself? And maybe just like what's working for you right now? Yeah. So I have two thoughts and I want to make sure we get to, and I want to talk about healing as well as well-being. So don't let me forget that I want to reflect on that for a minute. But so I live by myself in Raleigh, North Carolina. And, but as you guys know, and I think all three of us have shared like over the last 10 or 20 years, I think at least in this house, I've only spent, I traveled 41 weeks of the year out of 52, like for the last few years. So I didn't even really know my own neighborhood. <laughs> I didn't know like how great Raleigh was. It was like wonderful. So little things that I've done are like, I did, I've been taking a daily walk, which has been like, and every day I take a picture of something that I have never noticed before. And it could be like gorgeous. Yesterday I saw this beautiful like mushroom conglomeration that was like on the sidewalk and I was walking with a friend and she was like, what are you taking that for? And I was like, it's just for like my little collection of, I don't know what I'm ever going to do with it. They'll have it. So kind of capturing that moment and forcing myself to see not just like be doing and not just be on the walk, but actually observing what's around me. So that's one thing. I always um, had a yoga practice, and but I've, you know, I loved going to the yoga studio and being in community and being with others and that I'm really missing because my studio has gone completely virtual, but they've done a beautiful job of like making that experience, that community still feel like connected. And then Fidelity, to your point that you mentioned earlier, Jeff, does have this commitment to like well-being. So, you know, right before I joined this, we have um, twice a week, we have a, a midday meditation. And so that is like a 30-minute meditation that anyone and like senior executives, um, you're constantly seeing like people, I saw like two two people who report to our CEO on the call today, um, all the way through. And that is a dedicated time. And it's like on my calendar and I try to go as often as I can. And then... I also feel like, you know, I have like diabetes and I've sort of taken that very like casually and not really put a lot of effort into like doing anything about it. And so actually being able to like cook my own food and like go to the city farm and get like all this fresh produce every Wednesday has been like amazing. So little things that I would never have I never went to the state farm. It didn't even exist actually um, till I till the pandemic. And I was like on my walk and I kind of stumbled upon it. I was like, what is this little treasure trove of like amazing carrots and okra and green beans and whatever? And so I I think all of that has been key. And then luckily, like I was able to travel to be with my family for and I took like all these, I was super crazy paranoid and nervous and concerned about like everything and not wanting to go but 
actually, one of my sisters, she said, I think you're really lonely and you don't know it. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm not lonely. I'm on the Zoom calls like all day long. And I have like all these like fun things that I'm like getting to do virtually. And, and she was like, yeah, but you literally haven't seen anyone in months. And you're like an ultimate extrovert. You get your energy out of people. And I didn't, I hadn't even thought about that. Like I was so busy trying to say like, this is, you know, this is the new, the new normal. And this is the way we're going to operate. And we're going to find ways to work around it. And I'm so busy getting stuff done and like being on the COVID, you know, guidance task force and working on racial justice and equity issues, all these things that like really matter. And I'm seeing dollars go out the door. Like I have plenty of things to occupy me. Like how can I be lonely? And then going and spending time with like, you know, my college roommate and my siblings and my um, parents, like so healing in a way that I didn't even realize I needed. So I don't know. I don't know if that's all the right answer to the question, but it's sort of what I've been doing. But I, I'm really conscious of like, how am I going to keep this going if, like, when we're back to like traveling and meeting people in real life and can be, you know, we, we never did webinars for our donors. And now we have like 2,000 people showing up to a webinar at a go. And how do we? take advantage of that and say like, what can we be sharing with our donors that's challenging them to think in a different way, like, and to focus on their um, inner strength and their inner impact um, as well. I love that. Like, I think you're pointing to the quality versus quantity, you know, well-being versus healing. There is a difference. Like being well ultimately means being whole like being our whole selves, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially. And for each one of us, that means something different. But well-being has been so like commoditized, right? It's been so, you know, hijacked, if you, w- if you will, as a series of activities that you do to be well. And what you're speaking to there's a different quality of exchange that happens when we are human to human, person to person in the presence of each other's presence. Literally, when our presence is our heart field, our auric fields, our energy field, whatever you want to name it, when we are coming together, we, we come into coherence and that heals, that feeds us. And finding a way even on zoom or tailoring and listening to what we need, whether it's a walk or, you know, having a conversation just on a phone call rather than having to be on and carrying yourself in a certain way on video, like that helps us attune to what we need. And I think there is such a difference between, you know, really inquiring of what is the quality of the experience I want to have What's the quality that will help me center, that will help me refuel, that will re-energize, that will restore rather than like, it looks good. It sounds good to meditate or it sounds good to do yoga and eat, you know, but if we're just doing it in a transactional way, it can't really change our form, transform, as you're saying that we're doing in the donor giving, it's really the same thing of how we're, you know, how intentional can we be to practice giving ourselves that 
you know, that opportunity to transform during this time, whatever is on offer for each one of us, whether it's coming into better right relationship with self or whether it is, you know, learning how to cook at home or being aware of being grateful for all the blessings and all of the signs that we have every single day that we just don't notice because we're too busy externally focusing our attention. There's just so much in what you just said. And I think there is a difference and a nuance and it's up to us to choose the quality versus quantity. And I think we're going through a massive kind of, you know, opportunity to investigate what that means for each one of us. Yeah. I would just, I want to magnify the idea of intentional inquiry. You know, we always talk about the two concepts. We don't always put them together for people. And I think you just did that about being in conversation and asking questions about what do I need and what does the world need and where, where's the congruence between the two, but doing in a way that's not random and doing it in a way that's intentional, you know, from, like mid-March, we've been writing and saying to people, hey, let's not necessarily, you know, wish for things to go back to normal. And I think there's something to that, you know, we're a week out of the election as we record that. And I think we're getting better at listening to our own language about when we might be hanging on to something when we might be putting our presence somewhere else, like, well, when the election's over or, you know, in Q1 of 2021, when we're traveling again, and all of those things are, you know, a little bit of a trap. I think that doesn't, it doesn't mean that things won't change again or things, you know, the lockdowns won't go away or that, you know, we can't solve the problems of, of inequity that we have. What we actually mean is, not putting our own well-being or our own healing, making those contingent on anything else happening except where we're at. And I, and I think, Elaine, your question's a great one. And it's like, not maybe how do we m maintain these routines when we're traveling again, but what travel is most supportive of the routines that make us whole and, and healthy and happy? And, you know, just for us, we're really thinking about that because, you know, our whole way is about retreats in Park City or going to clients' offices. And we miss that people connection. At the same time, we're able to offer a lot of our services at half of what we used to before because we're not spending so much time flying. So there might be an and like there's there's some and like literally for our delivery that we find a way to be in community with people, but do it in a way that's more efficient for everyone and more supportive of a whole happy life. And I, and I do think that's the way forward for conscious leaders is how do we work together to find the and, and how do we start with maybe more of a blank sheet of paper than we had in, in February, 2020. That seems exciting to me about designing for well-being and designing for health instead of designing to get back to where we were. And when we hear ourselves say someday, one day, like that's a cue to remind ourselves that we're not living here in the present and to bring that power back now, because that's the trap. That's the it's seduction of, you know, cultural thinking, honestly. And it's a bit of a cop-out to say someday, one day. So, you know, taking the 
bringing courage into this moment to say that someday, one day I can create that now. What does that look like for me? What does that look like for my team is the invitation on offer more than ever, more than ever. I love that idea of designing for the future. Like I've been using the word reimagining, but I think designing is almost, it's like a utilitarian approach. Like it feels like it's something that can, there can be something to show for it at the end of it, which of course like is my action orientation is to go that way. And, and I think it's not just reimagining it, but it's actually putting it into action and practice, practicing that. I, when I think about flying, I used to be, that was like my only commitment to myself when flying was that I would not turn on my laptop or the Wi-Fi on the flight. So whatever length of flight it was, you know, 45 minutes or six hours, I would have that time to like sleep or, you know, read or do something that was not work focused or like, you know, write something that was like for myself, maybe a poem or whatever. And and now I'm like, why was I limiting it to like this little tiny space of time, which was like in this really like this tube in the air? Why? How could I make that part of my life? How can we rebalance that so it's not 45 minutes, but it's like 45% of the day or like, you know, 50% of the day is having that that ethos. And so that's definitely, I think that's something that we need to think about too. Love that. Well, like I said in the beginning, we could talk to you for days. Is there anything else you would like to just share or conclude with before we wrap up? One thing I've been toying with and thinking a lot about is like what trends we've seen this year. Because, you know, we talked about, you know, we had $7 billion go out last year already. And as of like the end of September, we had over $5 billion go out from our donor recommendations to nonprofits around the country, which is, and almost as many grants as we had for the whole year of last year had gone out by the time, you know, which is just unbelievable. And what it's making me think about is like, what are people actually giving to and how are they giving? Like, what is the, what are some of the themes? And this, this notion that I've been playing with, and I'll, I'm, I'll share with you as I write something about this more on this, but I, I've been thinking about this idea of compassionate philanthropy. So, you know, as a specific value that I think we're seeing a lot of our donors, like we talk about humility, we talk about generosity, but this idea of compassion keeps coming up. And so we saw, for example, a 668% increase in granting to food pantries or food insecure families or, you know, food in general. The idea of like people going hungry is just like is not something that our donors ever want to think about. So they're really trying to use a compassionate approach and having empathy at their heart and using that to influence how they're thinking about the choices they're making. So it's not just, you know, it used to be you would give with a faith-based one. So you give to your alma mater. You might give to like a community-based organization, somewhere you were a grateful patient. And those gratitudes and the ideas of like responsibility and obligation were so present and I think this new idea, which probably was present all along, but wasn't named, is sort of emerging now for me around this compassion-based philanthropy. And I I would just think, and, and, you know, as we think about your listeners, the idea of like these nonprofit and, and philanthropy leaders that are working with such 
a sense of like justice and compassion and service to others in their daily lives. Like, I just want them to know that that's not going unseen and the donors are really stepping into that and hearing that and wanting to stand with them and saying that compassion, you know, in the service of others is equally important to in the process of giving. And so that's just something I've been thinking about that I thought. We'll have to have you back for that. And I, I think it would be great to have you back actually at the beginning of the year when the trends are more apparent and you're kind of creating the trend, which is so cool about what you do. One thing that was lighting up for me when you were talking about compassionate philanthropy, we often deconstruct the word philanthropy for people and that literally means love of humanity. And as you're talking, I realize there are donors who kind of take a tough love approach to the sector of like, you know, it's not compassionate love. It's more, you know, begrudging overhead, begrudging paying for salaries. And I think a compassionate look is maybe what the sector needs more than ever of people understanding, you know, staff aren't statistics. Staff are the, the lifeblood and the work that is most needed is the work that's often most hard to see. So that's a really, really interesting framework. I like that, Elaine, a lot. It's That's cool. Yeah, it strikes me that compassion, you know, I think the definition is the concern for the suffering of others. And that is connection. That when we can see ourselves in another and we genuinely have that concern that brings us closer and that honestly is like the definition of oneness right where we're all connected and that if it's happening to you it must be happening to me at some level or vice versa and what is our what is our responsibility as we grow into a new decade where the wealthier are just getting wealthier Right. And we have the greatest divide of sectors, if you will, of society, of the haves and the have nots. Then, and then how can we amp up our concern for the suffering of others and help one another thrive so we don't have such a, a, such a gap and it's such an inequity in access, in resources, in treatment, in, in wealth, et cetera. So, really, it's always such a delight to talk to you and go down these rabbit holes of, of inquiry. Elaine, you're such a bright light in the sector and such a bright light in our lives. We are so grateful to know you and hope that 2021 will bring us closer together in a variety of ways. And like Jeff said, we'll absolutely have you have you back. So to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We would love it if you would give us a rating, a thumbs up, subscribe, share this with your colleagues and friends and, and tune into plentyconsulting.com. And if you want to learn more about Fidelity Charitable, you can find them at fidelitycharitable.org. Thank you so much for all the good that you're doing in the world. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much for the opportunity for connection and for being such bright lights in um, this time. Really grateful for you all. Oh, you're the best, Elaine. You take good care. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in. Join the conversation and learn more at www.plentyconsulting.com.
www.thepowerbrand.com.